You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. I was super excited to have Scott Shigioka on the podcast today. His whole book, Seek, and the way he pursues curiosity really opens up your heart to a different way. We tend to over-index on our brain, and he comes at it from the heart, and I thought that was beautiful. Curiosity is such a beautiful healing and an opening practice for us in our lives that we can take into pretty much any aspect of it, and it always will support us with reducing those feelings of fear, increasing that courage, with reducing that sense of distance and increasing that sense of closeness and intimacy with people. And I think that is such a worthwhile practice. This week, I'm speaking with author, speaker, and curiosity expert, Scott Shigeoka. Scott's book, Seek, How Curiosity Can Transform Your Life and Change the World, was named a best book of 2023 by Amazon and has been featured on the Today Show, Harvard Business Review, The Guardian, The Next Big Idea. Wharton's Adam Grant said, Scott's book is a timely bridge for our divided world. He conducts research with UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, and he's on the faculty at the University of Texas at Austin. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I feel, you know, tingles in my body as you do that introduction. That's so fun. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Well, you have an incredible story. I've read your entire book, and I'm a student of curiosity, have read a lot of books, anything that has the topic. And I love your story and your journey and your passion and your flair. Thank you. <laughs> Tell us, why were you curious about curiosity and why did you embark on this project? Yeah, it comes from a really personal place growing up. I remember being around 11 or 12 and yeah, I didn't have many friends. I felt very isolated, lonely. I was bullied often and no one was really curious about me. You know, what I was going through, what I was feeling, what I was excited about in life, you know, and I felt so othered and so disconnected. And it really started to change as I grew older and I started to really put myself out there and I started to get curious about others. And then in turn, they would start to get curious about me. And I felt a lot less alone and I felt like a sense of belonging and I just had much deeper social connections, which is what I was always hoping for and really yearning for. And, you know, I, I realized now as an author and as you know, someone who's done a lot of research on curiosity that that's really at the core of why I'm curious about curiosity is that every person, every child, every adult wants to feel heard, wants to feel seen. We want to feel like we matter. And the, at the heart of that is we must be curious towards others in order for them to feel that way. When we are curious about someone, they really do feel heard, seen, and they feel like they matter. But when we are incurious about them, we dismiss them, we don't care about what they think, or maybe we do care, but we just never ask those questions or engage with curiosity to those around us, whether that's our partner, our children, our colleagues, then they don't feel like they matter, they feel devalued. And that can lead to a lot of mental hardship and, and also make people feel really alone. And I don't want folks to feel alone because I know how that feels. <laughs> yeah. So how did you figure out that curiosity was a key to unlock this 
kind of amazing future? Yeah, well, I think the big pieces, you know, like you said, I do work at the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, and we essentially translate research into more digestible stories because sometimes you read a white paper, you read the research, and you're like, I don't quite understand what this means, but I want to. So we do that work of translating that into a way that anyone, you know, whether you have an advanced degree or not, you know, and we particularly focus on like things like awe and happiness and curiosity and trying to understand what can these, you know, states of mind and these practices do for our lives. So I did a lot of research um, and translation of research around curiosity, particularly with the divisions that are happening in our country. And I don't just mean political division, although that's a big one, especially here in the United States when we're going into an election year. But it's also the divisions that exist outside of politics, too. You know, we have huge conflict around race, around age, around faith. And then there's even geopolitical crises that are happening all around the world that then seep into our lives and seep into even our workplaces. So that was a lot of the work that I was doing. How can curiosity help us around these divisions? And I spent years sort of looking into this. And what I found is that, one, for instance, when we are very curious about someone, we see them as a person, as an individual, we reduce hostility, we reduce feelings of aggression, and we increase feelings of empathy even if they have very opposing views from us, right? And then two, the other piece around curiosity is that when I demonstrate that and I am asking you questions and I'm really curious about your stories and your values, that makes someone feel less defensive and actually more interested in also understanding you. So in other words, curiosity is contagious. So it creates mutual understanding. And so that was like the big aha moment, but I didn't want to just be like the academic in the ivory tower. So I actually went on a 13-month trip after I started learning all these things after a presidential election in the United States. And I was like, okay, I'm going to practice curiosity by going to a Trump rally because I did not vote for Trump. I'm a progressive. I'm very queer. I'm flamboyantly dressed, but I'm, I'm not going to hide those things. But can I actually connect to folks who are at a Trump rally who feel so different from me if I use these research-based practices of curiosity. And I found, yes, I could. And in fact, I made many great relationships with them and we were both able to understand one another. And a lot of that is in the book, those stories. But yeah, that's the big sort of starting origin story of how I delved into this. Yeah, I think one of the things that I like about your book is it was, you took a much more expansive view to curiosity, delving into like, well, how do we bridge divides at the Thanksgiving table or some holiday dinner with family and politics? So. I really like that framing that you put on it. And you talk about the spectrum of curiosity from sort of shallow to deep. Clearly, you have a strong theme of teaching us to go deeper. So tell us what they both are and give us an example of the difference. Yeah, there's like that TikTok trend that's going on right now with the videos of, you know, I'm about big, deep talk, you know, where I come in with my friends and it's like, we're not doing small talk to catch up. We're like going right into the heart. Like, okay, how's the boo? What's going on with work? What or is that still upsetting you? What's going on with your parents? You know, and I think that at the heart of that is like an illustration of the spectrum of curiosity. What I've found is that most folks tend to, especially in the workplace, they tend to hang out in the shallow ends of curiosity, which is when we ask questions that only give us a little bit of data or information about someone, you know, what's your name? Oh, what department are you in? Oh, where do you live? You know, those are really great introductory questions, but 
as you slide down the spectrum of curiosity towards the deep end, you can start to go beneath the surface and really see someone for who they are in their like rich, complicated, beautiful, like messiness. You know, you start to hear their stories or relationships, what matters to them, what ticks them off. So instead of asking a question like, what's your name? You might ask, what's the story of your name, right? Who named you? What's your relationship to the folks who named you? Instead of asking, you know, what department are you working in? You might ask, what's really exciting you about your job? What's really ticking you off about your job right now? What's making it hard for you to achieve the kind of personal success that you want to? What do you really want out of life? Like what makes you come most alive, right? So those kinds of questions in the deeper end just give you so much more rich detail about who a person is. And I kind of like to talk about it as an ocean that, you know, the shallow end is almost the gateway to the deep end. So it's a great place to start. You start with some of these more shallow questions and then you move into the deep end. But one is not better than the other, right? Like I love playing in the shallow part of the ocean, but I also love free diving, you know, and scuba diving on the deep end. They just show you and expose you to different parts of our oceans and our world. And the same is true for curiosity. So that's sort of the difference with shallow and deep. And it's really an invitation for folks to remind themselves, hey, like I'm feeling like we're hanging out in the shallow end of curiosity right now, but I love you and I really want to get to know you or I'm getting to know you as a new friend or on a second date, you know? So why don't I move a little bit more towards the deep end and ask questions that reveal a little bit more? And also you have to be willing to answer those questions too, right? You can't dish out what you're not willing to serve. And it also doesn't mean starting necessarily on the deep end as well, right? Like I don't go to conferences and say, hey, what's the deepest childhood trauma that you've ever experienced, you know, as a first introduction to someone I've met professionally, because that can be sometimes invasive or feel really confronting for folks. And it's about, you know, moving on the spectrum almost as fluidly as like you would on a wave. Yeah. I want to talk about courage. Charlie Munger from Berkshire Hathaway said, acknowledging what you don't know is the dawning of wisdom. And I think he's paraphrasing Confucius, Socrates, Einstein. I've seen all versions of, you know, Socrates, what I know is I know nothing and all that. And you connect the work to intellectual humility. Talk about how curiosity helps us develop intellectual humility. Yeah, so intellectual humility is based essentially the idea that we can't know everything as an individual person. There's so much more for us to learn. We must rely on other people for that learning and that it's devoid of arrogance, essentially, that we're not going to say, I'm a know-it-all and I have all the answers. Instead, we're going to come from a place of humility, knowing that we have limits and boundaries to our understanding and that new experiences and new people will constantly expand that. And that at the heart of that, is fueled by curiosity, right? If we recognize that we have boundaries and limitations to our knowledge, then our curiosity actually expands those boundaries and makes them wider. And it reminds us of our intellectual humility that, oh my gosh, there's so much that we don't know about someone else or about the world around us that we need to you know, explore and discover. I think this is also true for careers. You know, I've had a very, very winding path. You know, like I've run music festivals and I've you know, worked at the design firm IDEO and I've you know, been a music reporter at the Washington Post and now I write books and I write for the stage and for the screen. It's just a very winding career, you know, sprinkle in moments of like waiting tables, you know, like it's just, I could have never known in those moments where all of these experiences were going to lead. But I came in with a sense of both curiosity, like what might be possible? What could I learn from this position? You know, who are the people that I'm meeting now that might help me in the future? And then also with a sense of intellectual humility, 
wow, like what else do I not know about the world in terms of my career? Like what jobs do I not know about that are out there? Like what can I actually do to, you know, that aligns with both my purpose that I want to create in the world, the things that I love, my passion, but also, you know, having money and like making a livelihood and surviving in this world. So that's how they all work in concert together, intellectual humility and curiosity. And when you when you really hold those two things, which I believe was the recipe to all of my success, you start to encounter people you never would have normally encountered or experienced things you never would have normally experienced because you were open to it. And those fly open the doors to all of these incredible opportunities for you to grow, whether that's personally or professionally. Yep. Beautiful. So let's assume we want to pursue curiosity and intellectual humility, and I want to follow some of your advice and path. Talk about some of these speed bumps, the assumptions, the biases, the certainty. What are these things that we bring that are essentially learning disablers? Yeah, I think that, you know, you're naming a bunch of them. You know, fear is one, like, I'm really afraid of what's going to happen. And, and we need to cultivate a sense of courage, not bravery. Bravery means the fear does not exist and we're marching forward. Courage instead is that we recognize that there is fear inside of me, but I'm going to do it anyway because I know that I and others will benefit if I do that. So we have to embrace courage to move through the fear that we're feeling. The other piece is around certainty, right? We have to come from a place of intellectual humility rather than certainty of like, I know if I apply to this job, there's no way that they're ever going to accept me. Or I know that if I try to ask for a raise, there's no way that they're going to give me a raise. Or I know that if I, you know, talk to my partner about this issue we're having, like, I know how they're going to react, right? Like that certainty becomes a barrier from you actually giving it a try, being curious and taking what I call in the book, a brave pause to actually see whether your beliefs are true or not. And what we know from the research is oftentimes those negative beliefs that we have are often unfounded or are over-exaggerated. So yeah, you might've not gotten the grand raise that you're hoping for, but you got a little raise and that's great. And you wouldn't have gotten that if you hadn't asked, you know, or yeah, like it didn't go perfectly with your partner when you brought up that need that wasn't being met in the relationship, but you now understand one another even more and you recognize, wow, this is a journey we're going on with the conversations we're having together. So when you have certainty, you prevent yourself from action. And without action, there's no way you can change anything that's going on in your life. And so that's where curiosity comes in to, to be like, what would it look like if I were to apply for this job that I'm really excited about. And then the other piece that I love to talk about as well, because it's really important and I feel like it's under-talked about, especially in these spaces in business, is trauma, which is, let's say we go through a really hard moment with the previous employer where we feel really unseen, unheard. We feel like we get yelled at. Very toxic workplace environments that many people, including those listening right now, might be going through. It can be really, really challenging when that is your experience to be like, what is another experience in work that could be better for me, safer for me, could be more emotionally beneficial for me? Like, what would that look like? It's, it's even hard to get into that headspace because we're, we're almost in a, a really traumatic moment now. We're in a moment that feels really debilitating and feels really minimizing. And so what we need to do first in order to access that curiosity is to heal from that experience. And that really starts with, A, acknowledging what we're going through wow, this is a really toxic situation. I have a boss whose expectations are so high that they're 
unmeetable or if I do meet them, I'm up to like one in the morning and that is not healthy for me. So it starts with acknowledgement. Two is to really think about who are the people in our network that we can go to for support, whether that's our parents, our friends, trusted folks that we have in our lives, therapists, et cetera, to go through that process. And then three is to, you know, do that work of really caring for ourselves. And I don't necessarily mean like crystals and bubble baths. Like what I mean by caring for ourselves is giving ourselves rest and a break when we need that. Allowing ourselves to be pampered by those who love us and want to support us, you know, rather than pushing them away. Um, Writing, you know, a compassionate love letter to ourselves that highlight our assets and the positive things we bring to the world so that we can balance that with the negative rumination that we're feeling. So when we do all three of those things, acknowledgement, leaning on our networks of care, and then also caring for ourselves, we can heal. And then when we heal, curiosity becomes possible again. And I've actually learned this from trauma-informed therapists who have worked with you know, survivors of some of the most traumatic experiences. And they've said, it is difficult for you to be curious if you're traumatized. If you're in a, a really hard moment, it is very hard for you to get curious. But paradoxically, curiosity is a barometer of healing. So in other words, you will only truly heal if you become curious again. And so it's a, it's a great aspiration for folks to try to work to get back to that spot so that they can open up possibilities again and feel into that part of the human condition again. you want to develop invested leaders who motivate, inspire, and engage distributed teams across your organization, visit business.udemy.com forward slash invested dash leaders. I think it's a really important topic, and I'm glad you brought it up, the whole trauma and healing. And I I read a lot of research that indicates that a majority of us are tired. We're not getting enough sleep. A majority of us are stressed beyond belief having a work debilitating stress event at least once a week. That we know Vivek Murthy, you quoted him in the book, our Surgeon General, that there's a loneliness epidemic. So we're stressed, we're tired, we're lonely, right? This There's... All of this is going on, and I do think it's a big issue in the workplace because we assume in a lot of leadership and management, we assume everybody comes to work and everything's great. Let's just focus on management and leadership. And when we started studying this and unpacking the topic during the pandemic and remote work and hybrid, all of these things were being kind of exacerbated and getting worse. And so I'm wondering, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You, you just gave us some really good advice for ourselves, right? Acknowledge and build a network and care for yourself. Let's try and think that through. I'd love to get like, now I'm a team leader and I manage five or six or seven people. How do I have the conversation or even bring this up? Because I certainly know this from research that a lot of people, this is not on the agenda. They have their team meeting. They don't have a topic called healing and building trust and rapport. And I know that's a really big, important piece, but a lot of your book teaches us ways in which it would be really easy to start bringing that stuff to life. What would you do if you're a manager? Yeah. Well, I would push a little bit back on that, saying that I do actually see this in a lot of 
corporations, whether they call it well-being or culture or leadership and development or people operations. There's a, like many words for it, but I think at the heart of many of these professionals and leaders who I meet that occupy these spaces in companies is that they recognize Wow. When I look out at our workforce, when I look out at employees and even leaders, there is a huge mental health and relational issue that's happening right now. Folks are really anxious, folks are depressed, and that affects the ways in which they're showing up to work, and let alone how they show up outside of the office walls to their families and to their communities. And then there's also relational issues, right? Like a deterioration either between leaders and those who are new in the company, or even just a lack of feeling connectedness to other team members because maybe there was like a reorganization, or maybe there's a lot of new people coming in and they're feeling like, oh, like I'm part of the new guard, not the old guard. How do I, you know, really connect to folks who are different from me? So I do think that folks know that these are problems and they affect things like productivity, absenteeism, you know, whether folks are able to give their best to work. There's all these like real business imperatives for why you want to do this. And a big uh, sort of lever for all of that is to instill more curiosity into your workplace. So how do you get leaders, for instance, to model and practice curiosity by rewarding questions, not just answers? So not saying things like, okay, those questions are slowing down our project, our timeline, like let's just move on. Moving away from that kind of messaging to those are really great questions like you know that that we know through discovery that there's so much that we can learn from those who are here right now in this team meeting and the efforts that are happening even outside of our organization we can learn a lot from others and what's happening in the field right like those are two different dispositions leaders can also ask what's going on with their team members and 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 what they might need and want rather than operating from assumptions you know like maybe it's not a ping pong table that folks want to you know feel happier and healthier and more playful in their workplace maybe it's actually getting more access to leave you know parental leave or bereavement leave maybe it's to be able to feel like their their voices and the perspectives actually matter and make a difference in the business or in projects, right? So I think there needs to be more of an exploration that comes from leaders to really understand what's happening. And also I see, I call it supervisory gaslighting, which is, you know, when more positive managers who are like, oh, I never, I'm very curious. And then I watch them and observe them in the work context. And, you know, an employee will come up to them and say, I'm so sorry, I did like such a bad you know, job on that client presentation. I'm really sorry. And the manager who I'm observing will say, no, you did great. Like the client loved it. They emailed me. They, you know, it was, it was awesome. Don't think like that. That is also not a great way to respond because you're, you're essentially gaslighting them. You're saying your perspective on your own performance is wrong. My perspective is right. Stop seeing yourself in this way, which effectively reduces their confidence, right? Because confidence is all about, I trust and believe in the way that I view myself and the way that I move through the world, right? And you're essentially saying, don't see yourself as a failure, see it in my eyes instead, right? And when I call that to attention, it's like, oh my gosh, like that was so subtle. Like I didn't even notice I was doing that. You know, next time I can come from a place of curiosity and say, no, I don't think you failed, but tell me more. Like, why do you feel that way? But, you know, what do you think that you did in the client 
conversation that you'd like to improve on. Like, tell me more about that. And that actually opens the door for connection. It makes that employee feel like, wow, like my supervisor is listening to me. They actually want to hear more from me. I feel closer to them. And, and through that sharing, they might even discover things about themselves that, oh, wow, I have a negative self-talk voice in my head. I should probably do something about that. Or, wow, you know, that supervisor might realize, wow, your definition of failure is so different from mine. You actually see it in this very positive way where I see it in this very catastrophic way, right? So I, I think all of those pieces for leaders are so, so important to model curiosity. And when, we, when you actually have curiosity in a culture, it becomes contagious and everyone becomes curious in that workplace. And then you start to see from the research, anxiety levels go down. You start to see absenteeism levels go down. You start to see depression go down. I mean, there's all this research to show at the individual and the collective level that when folks are practicing curiosity, it has these real well-being impacts. And I think that's so exciting because curiosity is a capacity we all have. Like we don't have to learn it. You know, it's like, it's not like a new skill, like coding or something, you know, we, we all are born with curiosity. So it's already inside of us and we just need to exercise it like a muscle. Yeah. I wonder, one of the things that I can't figure out is why we still have employee engagement at 30 year lows and happiness bumbling around, right? We have so much, the, the research is there, right? You just made a perfect argument. You gave us some very specific things to do for addressing well-being in the workplace and how a leader can do it. I just am struggling with, it's common sense. It's rooted in theory. It's grounded in evidence. It's proven. Why aren't we doing it more? Yeah. Well, one thing to remember about these surveys is that let's say you're tracking happiness with your employees, right? You can't really know whether an increase in happiness is happening because of the workplace environment or because of maybe things that are happening in their personal lives, right? In their lives outside of work. There's so much that goes on outside of work that impacts the way we show up to work. And so I think that's really important to remember because, you know, we're operating currently in a society, in my opinion, that is dying in many ways. I mean, from our earth to society as we know it. And we're all in this like collective grieving process. And so I think that it makes sense that we're starting to see some of these levels go down because there's real, real issues that are causing real suffering to people both inside and outside of work. So I just want to like put that out there as a starting place. Um, so until we solve things like climate change or until we bring more peace and reconciliation into spaces where there is constant war until we can really lift people's economic situations so they're not living paycheck to paycheck or worse until we solve for social isolation and loneliness right as Vivek Murthy talks about like we we will still have these issues that bring down these measures of happiness etc but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything about it right? like we shouldn't feel defeated by it like companies are in a position to actually be levers of change in society because a, many people are employed by them, so you're affecting lots of people. And then B, we spend a lot of time you know, working. And so this is a huge opportunity for us to make a meaningful difference. And those meaningful differences not only help people in society, but they also make a meaningful difference in our businesses as well for the objectives we have. And so I think what I'm seeing as blockages is one, you know, folks will do these surveys, they'll start to ask about needs and wants, they'll hear things from their employees. But then um, there's some kind of blockage on actually translating those insights into action. So actually coming up with 
projects, ideas, and investing in them that can actually help employees feel more supported, feel like they have access to mental health care, you know, get the leave that they're looking for, et cetera, right? And a lot of that has to do with those who are in power being able and willing to be risky and experimental and try new things based on the knowledge that they're learning from their staff and implementing new projects and seeing whether they work or not. You know, but th- that's not happening oftentimes. There's like a collection of evidence and then there's no action. That's one thing I'm noticing. The second thing that I'm noticing is that we live in this world where there is a lot of unpredictability, especially if you're a younger worker, but I would also say this for older workers too. You know, there's a lot of unpredictability, like what is AI going to do for my job? Oh my gosh, there was another round of layoffs. Wow. Like, can I actually afford to buy a house? Like how would that even be possible? And a lot of those unpredictabilities create a lack of connection and a lack of attachment to the places that we're working in. And so even if you were to create action, you know, and like have these projects and initiatives, the engagement from employees, that percentage might be low. And so there, there are ways to fix that, but I, I definitely see that as something that's happening where like you're offering all the initiatives. Why aren't employees taking advantage of these things that could protect them and their families or, or like give them more happiness? And then the third piece that I'm often seeing is that I think that unfortunately there's just been a general erosion of trust in power and in institutions. And I think there are positive reasons for that. (laughs) And I think that it's important to question power and authority and institutions. But I think in this landscape of disinformation and this landscape of polarization and division that's happening, I think we look to senior leaders or we look to an institution like companies and we say, can I really trust them? I mean, you know, like they're saying we believe in supporting our environment in one way, or we believe in LGBTQ rights in one way, but then what I see them doing as an employee is totally different, right? And it's totally opposite to what they're vocalizing publicly, what's happening behind closed doors. I think that's why many young people are craving purposeful companies. Does this company have a purpose that is greater than growth, 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 and revenue? Because we've seen where that's taken us. And they actually want to make a difference in society or, you know, around our planet. Are there workers and, and leaders who actually care about what I have to say and make me feel valued and make me feel heard and seen? Or do they just see me as like a low paid grunt worker who's just like putting more data into an Excel sheet? And then three, is this employer actually giving me pathways to advance and to learn and to grow? And I'm actually feeling that as I'm on the journey in my career, right? And so those things need to change in order to create more trust back in our leaders and institutions, I think. Yeah. So one of the things you write in the book, and I think that all of us can feel, being loud and right are two contributors to being promoted at work. And loudness is rewarded, you said, and humility is devalued. And so I'm wondering what that tells us probably. And I know it's true because we've seen studies on, we tend to promote the people that talk the most that are extroverted and they tend to look or act like us. And then you perpetuate a bunch of how you ultimately get to a bunch of white male extroverts leading all the businesses. But we'll save that for another time. Really, what I want to get to is if humility is devalued and we want humble leaders who are caring, right, and compassionate and care about people and care about purpose more than profit, how can we be humble and still get ahead? What might we do today? Back to that, I'm an aspiring leader or I'm a team leader right now. How do I use humility and not just get pushed aside by the loudmouth 
that talks a lot. Yeah, and I think we need to recognize ourselves that leaders are not just those who are vocal or the best orators or are the ones who are often talking or talking the loudest. That, that some of the best leaders actually can be what folks call quiet leadership or servant leadership. They are always there, always supporting larger efforts, but maybe they're not talking as much because they actually like to digest and integrate what they're hearing and then go back after that meeting and really do research and formulate a really thoughtful response and a thoughtful approach um, to what it is that they're hearing. And so I think recognizing that ourselves is the first step. And then two, it's to actually make those more visible. So, you know, noticing like, are we only ever celebrating a certain type of leader? How could we do that same kind of celebration or increase the visibility of other types of leaders who have different styles and different forms of leadership? How do we recognize that leadership is not just based on your role or your position or how much salary you make relative to others in your organization that you can actually be two months in in a junior level position and exemplify tremendous leadership that has huge ramifications for the business and for the the teams that you work alongside. So how do we note that and say that out loud as leaders? So those are all pieces of like self-transformation that we need to do. And then just setting that norm and saying, we're the type of organization that recognizes that leadership comes in all kinds of ways. And that we also recognize that when people are coming from very different sets of experiences and different backgrounds, you know, there's actually tremendous value that comes from that, right? We know that a well-managed, diverse team has way more creative, innovative, and more effective solutions for business problems. And so we want that, actually, because that's good for our business and that's good for everyone's collective growth. But it's still that well-managed piece is really important. Like you can bring a really diverse group together, but it doesn't mean that you're actually going to come up with those great solutions unless it's well-managed. And a big sort of lens to use to make sure that it's well-managed is curiosity, right? That's why a lot of DEI folks will bring me in to do curiosity workshops because it's directly tied to DEI. It's, you know, when we are more curious about what this person is feeling or we want to understand them, understand their perspectives versus pushing out our own points of views or our own biases or our own you know, assumptions, that's going to create a better working environment that's more collaborative and that's going to lead to better outcomes. So I think all of that is really helpful. Yeah, beautiful. So if I take all of that and we're living in this world of uncertainty and we're trying to deal with chaos, I'm wondering how should we deal with uncertainty and chaos and how can we start to dance with change and absorb it and live with it and feed off of its energy as opposed to fight it. Yeah, a dear friend of mine, Uma, told me about a Jane teacher who taught her about this principle called Anakitavada, which essentially is translated roughly into living in the perhapsness. Living in the perhapsness. I love this because it's all about, you know, life. Let's say you're thinking about your career. You're 28 years old and you're looking ahead at your career or you're starting a new relationship and you're in year one and you're looking ahead at this relationship with this person that you really like. Or you're just, you know, maybe at the end of your life and your time horizon's different and you're looking at the next transition and stage of life. You're looking at your own death. Wherever you are in life, there is always a moment 
and always an opportunity to live in the perhapsness, right? To push away that impulse of feeling so certain about your career, feeling so certain about this romantic partner you're dating, feeling so certain about what death is going to look like or feel like or what that means for you, and to instead come from a place of curiosity and to really wonder and to revel in awe at all the possibilities that could be about this career that you could, you know, journey on or this romantic relationship you could love on or this dying process you might be going through. And I learned this from folks who are, you know, coaches, whether they're career coaches or they're marriage and family therapists or whether they're death doulas, you know, they work with people and they all essentially say the same thing, which is I want to encourage my clients or the people I'm working with to embrace curiosity, to really you know, instill that sense of curiosity in themselves and the people around them, because that's going to create the kinds of beautiful benefits and meaning that they're all looking for, right? When you are curious about your career, and so are your parents and the other people around you, they're like, oh, like, I don't know where you could go. Instead of being like, no, you should probably be safe and like get a STEM degree instead or whatever, you know, whatever our incuriosities come towards us, right? If they, instead, everyone around you is coming from curiosity and saying, wow, that entrepreneurship, that sounds really interesting. You know, where could that go? What are you thinking about? And you are curious yourself of what would that look like if I took that leap into a new, you know, career path for me. So much opens up for you. And also that journey becomes so much more encouraging and you feel so much more supported in that versus, you know, feeling resentful or angry. Like, why do people feel this? Why does my parent feel this way? Right? So encouraging curiosity from others around you, but also within yourself. I think that is such a worthwhile practice. If I summarized it all, Scott, you close the book with when life pulls the rug out from under you, don't hide. I ask you to seek. And I think you titled the book Seek and you tell us to become seekers and really to use curiosity as that fuel. It's beautiful. So as we wrap up here, we have a question that we ask every guest, and that is, what are you curious about and learning now? Mm. I think one of the big pieces that you know I'm looking to call more into my life is what does my spiritual life look like when lived out loud? I am a queer person that grew up in a particular part of a religious space that sort of asked me to cut off a life limb, which was to silence a part of my queerness in order to connect to the divine and to God. And obviously that created a lot of shame and self-hatred, and that was hard for me. But since I've healed through that and learned that not all religious or spiritual spaces are like that, they're actually really affirming and they can be welcoming of all kinds of people— I've become really curious again at, you know, what is my spiritual life? What is this vessel of a body holding? What is my soul? And how do I cultivate that over a lifetime? So I'm so grateful to be on that path and connecting to the divine again. So that's a curiosity of mine. I love it. Well, I'd love to keep tabs to hear about the spiritual journey, the divine life's purpose as you continue the quest to discover what it is, why we're here. The wisdom is in the pursuit, the journey, the purpose. So, Scott, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This has been great. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah. And reach out if you're listening and you just want to talk or you have curiosities, like please slip into the DMs, you know, like at Scott Shigeoka on Instagram and all the other socials. And I really do respond to readers. So that's my favorite part about being an author. So if you read the book, you have thoughts, questions, you know, please reach out. I will respond. Beautiful. Thanks again to Scott Shigeoka for joining us today on the podcast. Follow Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy Business, wherever you find your podcast. 
We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode to help you level up your leadership skills. Follow the show so you never miss a new episode. And if you like the show, leave a rating or a review. We love the feedback and it really helps us to find new listeners. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up podcast is produced in partnership with Pod People. Our original theme is by Soundboard.